All right, who's grateful for uh, Pastor Darren? <laughs> you know, that, uh, that huge smile and all that energy that you see occasionally when he's on stage or in the hallway, um, I just want you to know, it's there all the time, <laughs> all the time. That is him. And who's grateful for these students right here? This is awesome. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, I was just sitting in the back there um, while we were worshiping, and uh, near the end of that song, I was just having a moment. I'm looking around this room, and I don't, I don't remember the last time, I literally don't remember the last time we filled a room up together and worshiped together. It's, am I right? It's so long overdue. Uh, it's so good to be together. Here's where my mind went. I looked around the room, and some of you I haven't seen for a long time, and, that's, and whenever a pastor says, hey, I haven't seen you for a while, the person automatically feels guilty. Like, what I'm saying is, you haven't been in church, and that's not my point. When I say I haven't seen you for a while, it normally means, I haven't seen you for a while. <laughs> that's all it means. And I missed you, and I like seeing you. Um, and, and some people I didn't even expect to see in this room. Um, I know you, and you go to a different church, and for whatever reason, you happen to be here this morning. <laughs> and so, but it made me think about the, the millions and millions and billions of people, souls that have come before us that are worshiping the throne itself and the king himself in heaven. You think this room was energetic this morning? Imagine that. Imagine one day showing up in a space where all of the saints that came before and all of the saints who will come after us will gather together in one voice as one people centered around God. Imagine what that worship service is right now and what it'll be someday when we join in. I mean, take this times what? I don't even know what to take at times. A very big number. Whew, so welcome. Oh, man, I'm so glad you're here. Um, even if you're not in the room, this is, this is part of my point, is the, the people of God exist. Whether we get... Hey, Gary. <laughs> oh, thank you. <clears throat> That's Pastor Gary, and uh, I want to tell, tell you, this is what he does. For 10 years, he's been at my, literally at my right hand, going, uh, you might think of this, you might want to try that. Have you done, have you, uh, I'm telling you, if whatever kind of leader I am, 80% of it is due to that man right there, and uh, kids, it's time for you to go. <laughs> the parents are like, thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. Thanks, Gary. I wanted them to stay. I like them. <clears throat> Where was I? Droning on about uh, something. It's, it's great to have you here, um, whether you're in the room, right? This was my point, is the, the believers, the, the people of God, the saints, 
are, they are dispersed. We are dispersed. We, we are all over the place, all over the planet. And some people have a place to gather, and some people do not have a place to gather. Some people are free to gather, and some people are not free to gather. So they, they gather secretly. The people of God are everywhere. They're online. They're in, uh, they're in person. And times like these just remind me that God is on the move. Somehow in the midst of the chaos of this world, he is still calling people to himself and people are believing in him. And it's a privilege to be among you. Uh, I'm reading a book. I read a lot of books. I, I, I probably read almost more than I breathe. Um, and I'm reading a Ken Follett book. Do you know Ken Follett? He writes books that are very, very thick. Um, hard to pick it up. It's like you think, oh, I'll never get through this. And he's, he wrote a trilogy, the most recent of which is a, um, was a bestseller. 2017, it was called uh, Column of Fire. Uh, before that was World Without End. And the one that actually is probably more popular is Pillars of the Earth. And that's the one I'm reading about halfway through it right now. It's a historical novel um, set in England in the 12th century, so 1100s. Um, it's about a cathedral builder uh, named Tom, uh, a monk named Philip, um, a bunch of kings, both good and bad. And that's the history of the world. Kings are good or bad. I don't know why that, they're hardly ever neutral, just good or bad. Um, it's about bishops. It's about peasants, all of which are also good and bad. It includes all of the familiar plots of life, all the drama of human life, love, hate, loyalty, murder, innocence, wickedness, success, failure, tragedy, renewal, etc. He's a brilliant writer. What is starkly contrasting, where all of the common human drama is there. The stark contrast that maybe just because of who I am and what I do stands out to me is the comparison of today's world versus then is a, I'm going to say fear of God, but I don't, I mean that in the richest sense of the word fear, like um, respect and deference to God. And the same, uh, whether sincere or insincere, of those who serve God, like priests or monks or clergy. The, 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 the tone in all that's going on in this novel, which, as best we know, it, it really is capturing the tone of that era, was God is in control if, if, if you're doing wrong, you're, you're going to be found out and, and punished. And when a clergy walked into the room, some of the most heinous things could be happening and they would shudder because here's a representative of God. I, I, I think we could probably articulate the reasons that it's so different today. 
why in ancient times God was more readily regarded as ultimate, the orchestrator of all circumstances, uh, the adjudicator of all wrongs, the, the one to whom humanity compared itself and was found lacking. Right? Does that, does that seem like a predominant theme that we live with today? I don't think so. But there was a time where God was held, even though it to, in great degree he wasn't really well known. He was regarded in such a way that, well, this is the way Adam put it uh, this week during my podcast, uh, our podcast. We, we, we talk a couple times a week for just five or six minutes, um, and it's, it's a good way to kind of keep up with where we are in Romans and in the church in general. But we were talking, and he said, there was a time when we put ourselves on trial, but in today's world, God is on trial, right? We, we put ourselves at the center of the story and, and want to hold God accountable for what he's not doing or is doing that we see he should be doing or not doing. We're holding God on trial. And there was a time and space where we were on trial. We looked at God and the righteousness of God showed us that we were lacking To use a word we introduced last week from Romans chapter 10, it was a foregone conclusion in days past that God was righteous, holy, pure, and just, and that people were not. And that acts of unrighteousness by people, by the creation, were subject to immediate and eternal consequences of the creator, God. Right? There was a time. For the most part, the world doesn't live in that space anymore. But if you live in that space, and if you would have lived in that space, you would understand why sacraments, such as confession, were so critically necessary for the soul. Because otherwise, you had to live with this constant guilt, this constant sense of being unrighteous before a righteous God. If you wanted any kind of inner peace, any kind of even presumed circumstantial protection, you would ask forgiveness of God. You would keep yourself as best you could pure because you understood that God was capable of adjudicating and making amends for wrong because he's righteous. So here's my point. The God and the religion of the Middle Ages that I'm just steeped in right now because of this historical novel, is what I would say a healthier and more fully reflective characterization of who God is than the milk toasty, my bro upstairs context we have today. You with me? My co-pilot, you know, that almost defilement of the name of God, bringing him down into our space. 
Of course, Jesus came down into our space and dealt with all of this milieu and was, a, and was and is a brother to us, but God himself, the Father, and now Jesus reunited, deserves to be hailed, held up, revered, feared. And if we put ourselves in that perspective, we start to grasp a little bit better what Paul means as he passionately urges us in Romans to apprehend the joy that comes from being established, made right in Christ. Unless you understand the full character of God, Does it really make any sense or at least have any urgency why we would care about righteousness or Jesus at all? So we're going to, de- we're going to dig in more into Romans. I-, I don't know if I said welcome, but thank you for being a part of this. Uh, I-, I should say, if you have any questions about What's going on here at Vista? Please find a way to ask. If you're a part of the family, uh, you, you believe in what we're doing, please, please give. <laughs> if you would, please, don't allow summer plans and summer disruptions to interrupt your faithful giving. Now more than ever, the church, this church, your church, if this isn't your church, in general, um, is dependent on your dependence upon God as you give faithfully. Please give. If you're looking for connection and encouragement personally, um, let us help you find some friends. When Jesus said to the disciples, I I will never leave you alone, part of that answer was, I'm going to be in this world in spirit among other people to be there for you. So let us help you connect you with some friends if you don't have Christian friends that could do that. And if you're, and if you're part of the Northwest and you're here, thank you for making your way over and you're praying about a gathering space in the Northwest, we keep praying. We are close, we are close. Uh, but here's the thing, irrespective of how quickly that comes about, um, we will start meeting um, in early August in anticipation of uh, a more public launch again in September 12th over there. So be ready for that. Um, Early August, we're going to start really rebuilding that community and the momentum that we have had. And and what I anticipate is still there. We just, like this morning, it's hard to see. We're going to come together and get ready for a, a more public launch in the 12th. So, so here we are, uh, working through Romans. We started in chapter 16. For whatever reason, we're counting down backwards. We're also counting the weeks. Nine, nine weeks now, ninth chapter, nine weeks until September 12th. So time is ticking away. Uh, we're working backwards. And it's always good to begin with the end in mind. And this is what Paul prayed in chapter 16. He said, now to him who is able to establish you, And we're speaking of this idea of being made righteous. 
to be established in Christ. We're, we're doing more, I hope you understand, we're doing more than studying um, literature. We are being established through what we know to be true from God. We are being reestablished because we oftentimes gravitate away from what is true. We're being reestablished. We are, Paul's saying, now to him who is able to establish you, now to him who is able to secure your righteousness, to finalize your adoption to God, to give you solid emotional, mental, spiritual ground to stand on, to him who is able to give you inner peace, spiritual depth, a hopeful outlook, clear vision, true meaning, compelling purpose, sincere compassion, right? When I just rattle off those things, do you find yourself wanting, lacking in those things? Then you need to be established again because all of those things are available to those who believe. But when we lack those sorts of things, we have to admit, I'm not established. And Paul, at least part of the reason he wrote Romans was so that we would be able to apprehend these things, that we would be established. We're doing more than reading a book here. Here's what we find when we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's almost a separate idea altogether in the middle of this book. Paul is really troubled with regard to his Jewish brothers and sisters the rightful heirs of God's approval, of, of God's righteousness. Those who should have it have completely missed it. Many of them have completely missed it. This is what Paul says at the beginning of Romans. He says, I have great sorrow, unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. In fact, I wish that I myself would, were cursed and cut off from Christ if it would benefit my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. He's lamenting that they've missed out on Jesus. He says, they've, they're, they're set up. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law. This is, this is Paul, verse 4 and 5, not chapter 9. The temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all. But they missed it. He says in verse 31, the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. And it was breaking his heart. You see, righteousness, if we may have made this clear, is a theological concept in virtually every major religion. It's an attribute that implies that a person's actions have been judged by their God to be pure. And it can be calculated and proven. That's what it is to be made righteous and to be justified. Every major religion understands this gap between the righteous God and the unrighteous people and what needs to happen in between. And somehow, you've got to be made right with God for your life to be what it is intended to be and for it to end up where it is intended to end up. And there is a way that is God's righteousness, and they missed it. 
Righteousness is a state of being morally correct and justifiably so, a quality of life that is pleasing to God. We don't naturally live there. Really, only the pathological among us feel as though they're righteous. Only people who are real sick in the head can look you in the face and say, yeah, I'm, I am pure, morally upright. The humble, the sincere among us would say that at best, we're in pursuit of righteousness. Isn't that what most of you would say? I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm in pursuit of a life before God that he could at least maybe comfortably approve of, <laughs> right? I remember asking my dad one time if he was a believer. I mean, we've gone to church forever, but I'd been in a setting where um, it was a friend's father. We had found it was just not what we thought he was in terms of his faith. And I was like, one day I'm going to do my father's funeral and I don't want to be guessing around at his faith. And I said to both my mom and dad, and I was in my 20s probably, I said, you know, ask him. And he goes, I think so. You know, like maybe 51%, 52%, good. That's what I'm hoping. I'm just a little over the line. That's what we tend to think. That's about as high a grade as we'd like to give ourselves. Who cares, really? This is my... Who cares about righteousness anymore? Who really cares? Why do we care? Because like I was saying about the context of that book, in today's modern world, the general context of life, if you have God as a part of your worldview at all, is what? God loves the world. And if he loves the world, he loves me. And if he loves me, which I know he does, and he's forgiving, which I've heard he is, everyone knows that, I'm fine. I'm fine. Why do I care about God's righteousness or his unrighteousness? He loves me. We, we look at verses, and it's all through the Bible. You can find probably thousands of verses that support that. Psalm 36, your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Yes. For God so loved the world. Yes. John 3. 1 John 4. If those two aren't straight enough forward, straight forward enough for you, John 4, 8. First one. God is love. Boom. God is love. I'm not perfect. I know that. I'm certainly not righteous, but nobody is. God knows that, but he is love. I'm So what's the problem? What's what's the conversation about righteousness? Why are we together? Well, here for starters. For starters, all of those verses I just read go on. 
Psalm 36, your unfailing love, O Lord, is as vast as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches beyond the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the ocean depths. Oh. God loves you, but he's also mountainly, if that's even a word, mountainly right. And you know how deep the ocean, you know how deep they they thought the ocean was in the first century, they had no idea. They didn't even understand the earth. The depth of the ocean was undeterminable. And the psalmist is saying, your justice is, as, is deeper than we can imagine. You, God, are committed to the amends necessary for unrighteousness. Your justice is deep. Nothing is going to get set aside that has been unrighteous or wrong in your eyes. Yes, you love us, but your justice is as deep as the ocean. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. God loves the world but some people perish if they don't listen to God. Oh, God is love. He loved us and he sent his son to appease and satisfy God for our sins. God loves you, but he has a problem with our sin. So why do we care about this conversation about righteousness? Because when we have a fuller view of who God is, we understand that he is righteous and we are not. And that's a problem. God loves you, but he doesn't approve of you. Can you grasp that? He loves you, but he does not approve of you or me. You understand I put myself in the same camp, right? When I say that, you know, it's an inclusive you. I was talking to a friend of mine. He used to be one of the presidents at Cardinal Health, but he was telling me about the time that he dropped out of college. And he came home with all of his stuff in his car, very close family. His dad was working in the yard. He pulls in. Oh, my son's home from college. Son, my friend, says, I've dropped out. Oh, okay. They're tight. He loves them. He's like, tell me, what's going on? What's the problem? Okay, I get it. Wow, that sounds hard. We'll have to figure out our way through this. Yeah. So he starts unpacking his car, and dad says, what are you doing? He goes, unpacking my car. He goes, oh, you're not going to live here. <laughs> this, was, this was the plan. You are changing the plan, so you're starting your life now. I love you, but I do not approve of this. <laughs> he said, it was a life-changing moment. God loves you, but he does not approve He's righteous, we are unrighteous. He loves us, 
as high as the clouds are, but his justice goes as deep as the oceans are. This is what we read last week in chapter 10. Since they, Paul speaking of the Jews, those who thought they were righteous, they were the chosen people of God. By their very birth, they, were, they viewed themselves as righteous, but they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own They did not submit to God's righteousness. Two things keep us from being established. At least we talked about two. Two things keep us from becoming righteous or finding God's righteousness. One is performance. The other is self-deception. I'm not going to go into it too deeply this morning. We tend to try to define our own understanding of what righteousness is. We draw our own lines, we make our own conclusions, and we assume that God will come along. And we get into this performance trap. And it's not just the Jews, it's you and me. I come back to this metaphor all the time. How many of you have an up and down relationship with God? You feel close to him, then you feel far from him. You feel close to him, and then you feel far from him. We all do. And when you answer the question, why is that? It always comes back to your performance. We are trapped in this idea that it is my performance that makes me righteous. It is my performance that makes me approved of by God. It's never a winning solution. If by chance you should happen to perform well, you are now stuck in a prideful position which God hates. If you do poorly, you find yourself condemning yourself which breaks God's heart. We can't get there through our performance. We're trapped. Secondly, and similarly, we suffer from self-deception. We are so sick and tired of the up and down relationship with God or failing to find our way there that we just lower the standard clear down to how we normally live our lives and go, this is going to be fine for God. And I live in that lie that I'm righteous according to some super low standard. In both cases, Paul says, we don't understand God's righteousness. We tend to think that it is about our performance with regard to God's moral law. It is our natural Christian tendency to be like these first century Jews who misunderstood the purpose of the law. Do you know what the purpose of the law is? It is not to give you a pathway to righteousness in and of itself. The law is there to show us we are unrighteous. The law is a mirror that unless we are deceiving ourselves, says, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And if you should happen to be really good at morality, Jesus comes and says, you know what really matters is your heart. So if you're working around anger, If you're working around lust, it's there, but you're not being morally angry, outwardly lustful, still counts as that. The law, as Christ interprets it, causes us to look in a mirror and go, I've got no shot. There is no performance that can overcome my heart. 
No amount of moral or humanitarian work, no level of giving, no matter how many times you serve in kids' community, which you should be doing, no matter interpersonally or nothing interpersonally or socially can fix the unrighteousness of our actions, follow that out, nothing can truly fix the unrighteousness of our societies, nothing can fix that, that we can do. Are you with me? We're trying to fix a lot of unrighteousness in this world. It's not really fixable at the heart level by our own actions. And what they failed to know and what many of us well-intentioned Christians forget is the law is primarily there to expose our lack of righteousness. So what is God's righteousness? I got to wrap this up pretty quickly here. And I'm, I'm close, actually. How do we attain, how do we, if there is a righteousness of God that we can have, how do we get it if it's not by working at being good and it's not by lying to ourselves about how good we're doing, then how do we do it? And we get to the verse that we didn't get to last week, Romans 10, chapter 4, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. believes. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Do you realize how radical that is? Do you realize how much you and I rail against that concept? We want to earn it. Anything we have, we want to earn it. We don't want charity. I don't want someone to say I'm justified when I'm not justified. And Paul says, then you don't understand the righteousness of God. Because the righteousness of God is a gift. You don't earn it. It is with your heart that you believe and are justified proven righteous. Why? Because of anything you did? No, because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The good news is that God does have a pathway to righteousness for you and I. He does have a way for you to have divine approval, eternal peace. And shockingly, it has nothing to do with us, apart from simple belief alone in the one who is, was, and will always be righteous. It is faith in the one who rescues us from our inescapable unrighteousness. And here's the kicker. This is what's breaking Paul's heart. The Jews were set up. They have anticipated this moment, this Messiah, and they're missing it. And listen, and you know who was as far away from God as they could possibly be from the Jewish point of view were the Gentiles, which is basically everyone else. And listen to what Paul says. The Gentiles 
who did not pursue righteousness, the Gentiles who aren't even trying to live a moral life. Are you catching this? Paul says, the Gentiles, they're not even trying to live a godly life, have obtained it. (laughs) A righteousness that is by faith. Gentiles, non-Jews, were believing in Christ and they were apprehending the approval of God, which was blowing the minds of the Jews. And Paul's saying, not only that, you haven't attained it. You've been trying the wrong way. They're living by faith and they have it and they've done nothing to earn it. Nothing. The people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, Paul goes on, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. Where should your relationship with God be? And why? Jesus. My wife's preaching the message over here. She's clearly heard it before. I have, I have not finished one sentence on my own. You can't hear that. But she is, she is right there with me. And on top of that, theologically correct almost all the time, which is awesome. She's spot on. Spot on. She's preaching next week, actually. So make sure you come back. Yeah, she's covering Romans chapter 8. Yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever is unrighteous and completely unable to fix that can, by their belief in the son, be saved. Beth Moore says, Jesus is the point of the gospel. Growing in likeness to Jesus by the transformation of the spirit from glory to glory is the point of discipleship. Jesus is not the means to an end goal. Jesus is not the means to an end goal. How many of you use Jesus and or God in order to help you achieve your own goals? Good, wonderful goals. Back to Romans 10.9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess, profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Why do you ever feel shame? Why do you feel shame? It's your performance. And should you feel shame due to your performance? Absolutely. We don't say this anymore, but my dad used to say to me, shame on you. Shame on you for that. And he was right. I should be ashamed of my behavior. But in Christ, we will never be put to shame. In Christ, God doesn't look at us and say, shame on you. 
He looks at you, and if you've trusted Christ, he sees Jesus instead. Have you read? We are clothed with Christ. We put on Christ. I oftentimes think of it as I'm, I'm going to God on the arm of Jesus, right? I'm one step behind him. I'm hanging onto his arm, and I'm going to God for, you know, reconciliation. Like, I want to I I talk to God. And I have no right to go in there. I should be ashamed of my performance. And Jesus says, I'll take you in. And God says, who's coming in here? And Jesus says, I am, with Mike. And God goes, cool. As long as you're bringing him in, because you're righteous. If he's with you, he's good. It's the work of Christ that is righteousness to those who believe. Catch that. It is the work of Christ that is the righteousness to those who believe. As ridiculous as it may seem, the righteousness that our soul longs for, and our soul does long to be right before God, it's only pride and self-deception that keeps us from recognizing, I'm not... I should be ashamed. I want to be more like my creator. Shockingly, the way we attain that is simply by believing in the Son. So I've got three things for you. This will take me just two minutes. One thing to ponder, one thing to practice, one thing, and I couldn't come up with a word that started with P. I'm, I'm failing in my, my older years. And one other thing. Here's what I want you to ponder. I'm serious. I couldn't come up with it. I didn't have time. (laughs) Number one, one thing to ponder. Who is saved? Who is saved? This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 19. He hearkens back to something Moses said. I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding yet they will find righteousness. When you look around in the world today, who do you deem cannot possibly stand right before God. And you might be wrong because their behavior has nothing to do with it. We judge ourselves and everybody else by their behavior. We look at their behavior. We look at the way they're living their life. We look at the choices they've made. And we go, not godly. And the Jews of the first century, and Paul would say, careful. They might believe and be unfinished in their discipleship. And if they believe, they're righteous. Who is saved? Isaiah said, I was found by those who did not seek me. This is God speaking. Isaiah said, this is what God says. I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. (laughs) Think about it. When you're walking around in this world, think, who is saved? And recognize, somebody might be saved, and I can't tell. Am I saved? Are you saved? And, and why, right? Okay, number two, something to practice. Start and finish every day remembering that the aim is Christ. 
not you. It's about you, Jesus. Good morning. It is about you. I am right before God because of you. And that is the central truth of my entire day. And then end it that way. God, I'm sorry, <laughs> right? Isn't that where the end of the day prayer starts? I'm sorry. I've proven again my inability to find righteousness through my behavior, but that's not where it comes from. The aim is you, I believe, every day. And then third, this third thing. <clears throat> Think about this. If it's not for your approval, what then is the point of your work, your discipline, your obedience, because it is still called for. If it's not for the purpose of your righteousness, what is it for? Because you're still supposed to obey. You're still supposed to live a moral life. You're still supposed to give your life away. You're still supposed to be like Christ. It just has nothing to do with your approval then what is it about? We'll answer that next week or the week after or for the rest of our lives. God, thank you for teaching us again through the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you've been with us online, we're saying goodbye. Thank you so much for being a part of this. You're a part of this family no matter how you connect. <laughs>